uh, for several weeks. We've been leading up to the outreach that we did last week by talking about evangelism. Um, you might guys remember early in October, Gabe brought two messages to spur us on, and the joy we have is children of God sharing our faith. The last two messages I brought before the outreach were, were more sobering. Um, I sought to bring you guys into the really bad news um, of the judgment that mankind is under for our sin and our rejection and rebellion of God, not happy news. Um, and that that is leading mankind towards a final day of judgment. And that final day of judgment is going to mean for many people an eternal state of unforgiveness. The Bible calls by various names, um, different either phases of or explanations for what it is, whether it's hell or Hades or Sheol, eternal destruction, eternal punishment, eternal shame, a perishing, which is irreversible. All those names are bad, and they mean really sad and irreversible things. This is the bad news which necessitates the good news, the good news of the way that God provides out of this coming judgment. And last week, we delved into the nature of the good news. And that truth is the news that God's judgment is taken away because he wants it to be taken away and he made a way for it to be taken away through the death of his son, a death in Jesus Christ, a death, the death of Jesus Christ in which he takes for us the punishment that we deserve for our sin, the truth that he rose from the dead to give us new life out of spiritual death. And one day, that new life will mean new physical life as well in the resurrection. That that resurrection is meant to be a way that he can put his own resurrection life into us so that we can live new lives internally with him. He puts his spirit in us. And because of that, our lives are new and it results in new life. And we ended last time by looking at 1 Peter 3.15, which exhorts us to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And, and all these messages in October are for that reason. I mean, certainly, I want you guys to be informed for your own souls, but we want to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So that's why we've been reviewing these basic things about how people are saved and what they need to be saved from so that we can be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We talked about Peter's command to do that with gentleness and respect, that we want to be sensitive and loving and caring to the people around us who need Jesus. And we don't want to be bludgeoning them and thumping them um, and oppressing them with the way that we talk or act. We talked about what it meant to live the kind of life that actually provokes people. And that may take a long time. It may take years for people to be provoked enough to, to say to us, why are you different? Why do you act different at work? Why do you act different you know, when people are joking about others, when people are slandering others, when people are in need? Why do you do what you do? But that's our hope that they would ask us and then be able to give an, we would be able to give an answer. So today, I, I, and, and lastly, I don't want to skip out, we talked about the nature of 
the, the need that, that Jesus' answer to our predicament is not just one of many different answers. It's the only answer. We have one creator. And that creator has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. It's one way. He isn't trying to be cruel about it. There's one creator. He has one way because he's the creator and he has the authority to decide. And in the nature of our predicament has engendered in him compassion and love and a sacrificial activity that's, that's un, unquantifiable. He's given everything that he can to reconcile us to his son. But that's how we're reconciled to God. We're reconciled through his son. And so the Bible makes clear in different places that there is one way to God. There aren't many different ways that all lead to the same place. There's one way, and it's through his son. So today, in the the next message, Lord willing, I want to talk about being prepared for the, the next part of that conversation. In other words, let's say someone does ask you about Jesus, does ask you why you're different. They notice your love, your kindness, your work ethic, or they're just in crisis and they know that you have an answer and they're asking for it. Let's say you're able to tell them that you have a hope because Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead to give you a share in the resurrection and that you've been forgiven and that you actually have new life now and you can testify to that. Then let's say they want to know how can I receive that as well? In other words, how should they respond to the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? What, as the crowd asked Peter, what must we do? What must we do to be saved when they heard him preach the gospel in Acts 2? So, here's something that's important to remember. The gospel, the good news, is a matter of historical fact. It's objective. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he rose. That is the good news. It's objective. It's what Christ did for us. No matter how we feel, the ground of our salvation is Christ and what he's done for us. We're not to look inward for the reason why God saves us, but upward and outward to Christ who died for us. However, it comes to us as news, and it's news to which we respond. People respond to it. So what's the response? What's the right way to respond to the news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for our sins and for our own resurrection in him? Biblically and historically, the response to the gospel is, has been summed up most often, I believe, in two words, repentance and faith. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry through that of the apostles, these concepts, repentance and faith, were proclaimed as the right response to the good news. When Jesus begins his ministry early in the Gospel of Mark, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15. When Paul, let's go to the other side of the Bible. When Paul, the last of the apostles, is explaining his evangelistic mission to the Ephesians, he reminds them 
his message. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So from Jesus to Paul, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We could look at many other passages and there are some different ways and different words that are used, but I use these two passages in Mark 1 and then the, the, towards the back end of Acts as sort of bookends at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and in the ministry of the last of his apostles, we hear these words, repentance and faith, repent and believe. So we're going to take a deeper look at these words this morning. And I want to pray one more time for this message that the Lord would work. Pray with me, please. Lord, I pray that this message would equip us to rejoice and be assured. I pray this message would not end in condemnation and confusion, but by your grace, it would end in a deeper assurance and a deeper joy and a closer walk with you. I pray also it would equip us to be able to explain in ways that are appropriate and shrewd and thoughtful how do our neighbors respond to you in this news and i pray this for your glory and for our good in you in jesus name amen what is repentance we're going to cover repentance today and next time lord willing we're going to cover faith and I'm going to explain next time how faith and repentance, I'm going to be careful, they're, they're really two sides of the same coin, but they're two different words with two different aspects of the same activity in regard to the gospel. So today, what is repentance? What is repentance? Repentance is a Greek word, metanoia, which technically, literally means a change of mind. A change of mind. But this is no superficial change of mind. As regards the gospel. It's not a flippant change of mind. To repent biblically. Is to have a fundamental change of mind. And heart. About our sin. And about God. That by God's grace results in changes in our lives. Let's look at the next slide. I think I got this this quote there. No, no, can you go back one? I thought I sent this actual sentence. Can you go back one? Okay, go forward. (laughs) There you go. Okay. So this is my sum up statement for everything I'm going to say today. To repent biblically is to have a fundamental change of mind and heart about our sin and about God. That, by God's grace, results in changes in our lives. So repentance involves both our minds, our thinking, and our hearts, our emotions, our affections, and ultimately leads to our actions. And and here's what happens in repentance, in biblical repentance. Instead of being comfortable and resigned to our sin in our minds and in our hearts, in repentance, we come to see our sin as God sees it, truly worthy of his condemnation and truly worthy of turning from. And if sin is rejection of God and rebellion over his good rule over our lives, biblical repentance is also a turning of our hearts back to God to agree with him 
not only about sin, but about his goodness, his holiness, and his right to lead us and be our God over our lives. So in biblical repentance, we see ourselves in a deeper way than we, I'm talking about converting repentance particularly, we see ourselves in a deeper way than we have as guilty before him, the one who we owe our greatest love and devotion to. And in response, we grieve our sin and turn to him for mercy. So in repentance, we're seeing sin. We're seeing it as, wow, it's, it's actually awful. I actually, I don't like this. I don't want this. <coughs> but it's not isolated from God because we see our sin in light of who God is, the fact that we're seeing him in a way we never have before in conversion. We're starting to see him as beautiful and good and glorious and holy and honorable and worthy of our lives. And in, and in that light, we see ourselves and we see our sin and we say, we say what David says in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. And I have this, I have this slide, Josh, if you can go forward one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We could take several messages to unpack this psalm, but what I want you to consider in this psalm is that David is awake in his heart to what he has not been awake before to. He's committed murder. He's committed adultery. but, But he's done those things and has been resigned and comfortable to live with them, enough to hide it, enough to do it, enough to make all kinds of machinations to, to push even deeper into it, make sure that he is not dislodged from his comfort level with that sin, but he's able to stay with it. He now feels the wrongness of it. He hates it. And he hates it and sees the wrongness of it in light of the holiness of God. Notice what he says. He says, I've, I've done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and, and blameless. And he says, I've sinned against you and you only. It's, it's not technically wrong to say that he absolutely sinned against that poor family of Uriah's and Bathsheba. He's not saying I didn't really sin against them. He's saying that his sins against them are eclipsed by the realization of the offense all sin is to God. The one who, who owns all things, created all things. The one for whom all things are made. He realizes this is actually all against you, ultimately. <clears throat> but I want you to, for the sake of this message, understand that's what's going on in David's heart. He's seeing the wrongness of his sin in light of the glory of God. That's repentance. That's repentance. More comes from it, but that's repentance. Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 demonstrates, again, biblical repentance. In the same way we see from David, excuse me. Jesus also told this parable 
to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. One man is repenting and the other man is not. And worth noting here is that the Pharisee, who's not repenting, he's not directly accused of lying in his prayer. Like, for all we know, he really did do these things. He really did fast and tithe. And he was not like an adulterer or a swindler. But he's seeing himself not in light of who God is, but in light of who he thinks other people are. It says he trusted himself that he was righteous and viewed others with contempt. He doesn't see God. He doesn't see God's holiness. And, and so he sees himself as better than other people. He sees himself as righteous. He's blind to his real condition because he doesn't see himself in light of God's holiness. And if he did, then he would, he would despise his arrogance. And he would feel bad about his judgmentalism towards other people. But the tax collector realizes in his heart that in light of who God is, his holiness, his goodness, his sinfulness, he's unworthy of salvation. And he has got no right to demand mercy and good treatment from God. But he's, it's right that he's under condemnation. And so his cry is simply, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's the cry of a repentant heart. His cry reveals that he sees and hates his sin. He, he deems it unworthy in light of who God is and God's worthiness. So in repentance, we see God as glorious and perfect in holiness and goodness and worthy of worship, love and honor and obedience. I'm not saying we're all aware of those things all at the same time, but that's what's going on. We're seeing God's worth. And in repentance, we see ourselves in that light and we see the worth of our sin, that it's unholy. It's worthy of condemnation, and we desire to turn from it. We, we, we don't see all this perfectly at salvation. We don't see all this perfectly as we grow as Christians. We may not see it very well at first. Our whole lives in Christ include growing in these realizations. But if repentance is truly biblical, though we may not see them perfectly, we see these things truly. We do see them. And now I want <clears throat> to talk about a few qualifications in, of repentance, which will hopefully elucidate more what repentance is and what isn't. First, really important, biblical repentance is not a work. It is not a changed lifestyle by which we're saved. And I'll, I'll look at a couple of scriptures in a second that I, I hope will demonstrate this. But Michael Horton, a, a, a theologian I really like, he explains the mistakes we can have in our understanding of biblical repentance. Here's a quote of his. Often, repentance is more broadly defined to include actual change in character or behavior. 
In this theology, repentance is understood not only as a change of heart or mind, which is what I'm saying it is, but as a new obedience. And it's typically regarded as the condition rather than the result of forgiveness. I want to stop here for a second. I remember a, a, a moment in my walk with God where I had um, I'd hurt somebody and, and I went to them and I asked their forgiveness and, and they said to me, I re, I, they said to me, um, this was somebody I really respected and admired, and it was, it was kind of shocking. They said to me, well, I'll forgive you, but I don't think you've repented. And I said, you know, I was trying to figure out, well, why? Well, I need to see some more stuff. I need to see your life and decide whether you're really repenting. And so, and I, I think you're unrepentant. I said, well, why, how can you say I'm unrepentant? I'm not continuing in that behavior. And, and you, you see that I'm asking you forgiveness and this isn't even some pattern I'm locked in. I just don't believe you're really repen- you know, repentant. If I see you change your life and see the fruit, then I will call you repentant. But I'm not gonna call you repentant now. That was crazy talk to me. <laughs> I'm not saying you guys might totally get it and understand it, and I do to some degree. But in that moment of asking someone's forgiveness, for them to say in the same breath, I forgive you, but you're unrepentant. I mean, and that's actually what the person was saying. I'm not talking about trust, right? I mean, we've all, we all know people and we grow up with people that continue to hurt us the same ways or things that we do to continue to hurt other people the same ways. There's a difference between forgiveness and trust. But the, the, the point is, well, I'll just go on to, to his quote. Some Christians struggle to the point of despair over whether the quality or degree of the repentance is adequate to be forgiven, as if repentance were the ground of forgiveness and the former could be measured by the intensity of emotion and resolve. However, according to Scripture, it is not our tears but Christ's blood that satisfies God's judgment and establishes peace with God. Now, I want to hold off on that conversation I was having with you guys a few moments about these transactions between us because I I agree, there are times where someone comes to us and they'll say, I'm sorry, I apologize. And it's so clear to us that the apology is is actually feels the very opposite. Like, fine, I'm sorry. You know, that kind of thing. I want to be careful because I realize you might be getting that impression. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? There are those times where we recognize... This person isn't really sorry. They're not really asking forgiveness. They're just angry at me and they want to keep doing what they're doing. But what what Horton is talking about is identifying repentance as a work or a changed life becomes very problematic because if we're to see salvation as solely a gift of God's grace and not earned by our lifestyle another way of saying it, by a pattern of good works. We we have to see repentance rightly, a change of heart and mind that can happen in a moment. And, And he goes on, our tendency, even as believers, is to turn back to ourselves and trust in our repentance. We must be driven again to despair of our righteousness as well as our sin by the law and cling to Christ. Acts 2, 37 to 38, verse 41. Peter says this to the crowd. They say, brothers, what shall we do? Because Peter's proclaiming the gospel to them. Listen to what Peter says. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 41 says this, listen. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about a thousand souls. Think about the implications of this. Peter proclaims the gospel. They're convicted that the gospel story is true. They ask the question I'm asking you to answer today, which is what should we do? What should be our response? Peter says repent and be baptized. And it happens that day. So what's the implication? If repentance were a good work or a pattern of a changed life, there was no time for any of that evidence to be available to Peter to see. If a changed mind and heart, on the other hand, about God and our sin is what makes repentance legitimate, then this is something that can occur in an instant internally where no outward fruit is yet visible. And that's why people come to Christ through the Holy Spirit at one point in time in their lives. So biblical repentance is not a work or a changed lifestyle by, by which we're saved. We see this also again in Matthew 17, 3. There should be, can you go back one slide? Okay, Brandon didn't get that second slide. This is another, it's my fault, I gave it to him. It was a second draft, I gave it to him too late. Brando's great. <laughs> I don't want to blame him for my lateness in getting the slides to him. Matthew 17, 3. Listen to this. Think about the implications again. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. What he's saying there is, is not just pay attention to yourself. He's saying, watch over each other. That's why, one of the reasons why we want the DRs, right? Watch over each other. You're responsible to care for each other's souls. And he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, in one day, sins against you seven times and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What does that tell us about repentance? I'm not trying to preach cheap grace. I'm trying to preach the Bible authentically. What it says is that if repentance was a work and a performance that you had to do for someone that had to be judged over time, this wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to say, if he repents seven times in one day and says, or if he sins against you seven times in one day and says, I repent, you must forgive him. You must forgive him. Now, Jesus isn't a fool. He isn't asking us to be fools. And I've said this before. My point, I'm, just because it's an illustration in my head. Love my mother. She's, I pray she's with the Lord. She was amazing in so many ways. She was an alcoholic. She drank often my whole life to get drunk. I would, I would forgive her again and again and again and again and again for doing the same thing again and again and again. It was really hard. It did bad things to us and our dynamic, to her and to me. It's not great. I'm not saying, but I, I, I was called to forgive her. But I would never trust her with my kids. Never let them get in a car with her driving. God isn't asking us to be dopes. But she really was sorry, I believe. And I really did forgive her. And she really did make mistakes again and again. And I had to forgive her again and again. Do you know who else does that? Me. With God. Same things. All the time. So repentance is not a lifestyle performance that that God includes. However, number three, it will result. Biblical repentance will result in a changed life. Not a perfect life, but a changed life. Though biblical repentance is not a work or a changed life that saves us, it will result in a changed life by God's grace. Scripture describes the changed life as the result of true repentance. 
a changed life and good works are, in Acts 26 and 20, beautiful way to put it, the fruit. Next slide. The fruit in keeping with repentance. The fruit of real repentance. What comes out of our heart that's really repenting is new fruit. A changed life and good works are the fruit in keeping with repentance. Or deeds consistent with repentance. And you might see that even in the day, in a conflict with your spouse, when they say, I'm sorry, but there might be a tear brewing in their eye. Or the tone of voice in which they say it. Or the way that they articulate what they just did that was wrong. Man, I really see how I blew it because I did these things. I really understand. I'm just treating you like a jerk. Would you forgive me? So there can be fruit even in the moment. Something happened in their heart, though, before that word came out. Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist is rebuking the Pharisees for coming to see his baptisms, but not to do business with God. They're either coming to a show or they're coming to condemn him. So he cries out to them, why are you here? Why did you guys even come? And he says, produce fruit then in keeping with repentance. I'm baptizing people to, to, to turn back to God from wayward ways. I'm not here to put on a show for you, get into a theological argument. If, you, if you're, you're going to be here then, then, and you say you're really here to, to honor this baptism, then actually produce fruit out of your lives that will show that. Acts 26, 20, Paul's explaining his gospel mission to King Agrippa. He says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That's his, that's his conversion point. He saw Jesus in a vision that changed his life. He says, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, And then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. If those deeds were repentance, it would be a redundancy, right? He wouldn't need to say it. But he says, turn to God, repent, and let there be deeds that show you and others that that repentance is real. So there's no such thing as biblical repentance that doesn't result in a change in our lives, even if it's the change in our tone in an afternoon with someone that we're being cruel to. And of course, this is, just makes sense, right? Because from a human point of view, when we truly see God for who he is and we see ourselves for who we are, we can't want to be and say and think and do the sinful things we've been <laughs> thinking and saying. From a divine point of view, it makes sense because the same God who works that new seeing in our hearts is also going to stay in our hearts to work a new living. So repentance does result in a changed life. Number four, biblical repentance is a command of God. It's a command of God. All people everywhere are commanded to repent and believe the gospel. Acts 17.30, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 2.37-38. Peter says to the crowd, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. How we preach, proclaim, communicate the need for repentance, it's going to vary depending on the relationship, the audience. And as I've said different times before, I can't command some one-size-fits-all method for evangelism to you. But repentance is commanded to all people in the world, everyone in the world. It's not commanded to people who've grown up churched. It's not just commanded to people who are terrible heathens. It's, it's not 
It's not something that particularly sensitive Christians who love to read the Puritans need to just keep doing. It's, it's commanded to all people. That's why it's crucial that, that when we have the opportunity to explain to someone how they may be saved, we, we don't ignore it. We don't sugarcoat it with a gospel that simply says, God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. It's all good. You're all good. It's true that God loves us and wants to have a relationship with us, but there's nothing in that statement in itself that logically calls for repentance. But if we listen to Peter in Acts 2, he tells the Jews when he's offering the gospel, not only the majesty, the glory of Jesus, and not only does he give him credible reasons to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and to have faith in him, he shows them their sin. He says, you rejected and crucified God's chosen Messiah. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Not a seeker-sensitive sermon. (laughs) He's not trying to winsomely talk someone into Jesus with uh, sweet words of what Jesus simply can do for them. I mean, he definitely talks about what Jesus can do for them. But he's straight with them about their sin. You listen to Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17. Big crowd, Gentiles. He doesn't simply tell them, the Athenians, that God wants a relationship with them. He does. It's true. God does. But he respectfully, but honestly, indicts their idolatry. He says, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver and stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. Now, if if I were Paul and I read that, if if I thought about what Paul just said, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. I read that sentence and I literally just am just like, boy, those guys were just uh, making wrong choices theologically. Like they just were doing some dumb things because they had different religions. Silly people. I mean, really, that's what happens to me. Brothers and sisters, this is the worst thing they could do for Paul. Like, <laughs> it's the first commandment. It's Romans 1, the wrath of God is manifest on mankind because they've perverted who God is. They're worshiping the creator rather than the creator. The creation rather than the creator. I don't think he said these words with kind of a ah shucks mentality. He's saying this is, and he may not have said it with heat and screaming and rage, but I think in his heart he knows this is horrible. This is horrible. He doesn't talk to them about their adultery and their slavery and their corrupt business practices and their hatred of their wives and their parents and their abusive kids. All those things are, are part of that society. But when he brings the gospel to convict them of their sin, he talks about their sins against God. You've lived lives of idolatry. Of course, all that other stuff, the way you treat your wives, the way you treat your kids, slavery, it flows from that. But to Peter and Paul, the biggest issue is how they've treated God, how they've treated the one 
who has a right to everything in their lives, to, to love them, to, to rule them with love. So Paul says, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. It's time to get rid of your idolatry and turn to God. He's going to judge the world for that. So stop it, he's saying. Turn from it. Repent of it. The last thing uh, I want to say is that repentance is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Ephesians, Second Timothy 2, 24 through 26 Paul is training Timothy in dealing with false teachers in the community. And he's telling him, you've got to face up to these guys. You've got to be honest with them, but be gentle, be patient with them. And then he says, and I'm going to quote now, he says, that perhaps God may grant repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Repentance is a gift. Faith is a gift because salvation is a gift. And repentance and forgiveness come as a package. <laughs> it's an all-inclusive package when someone is saved. So this has all these, all these different aspects of repentance bring us to a few conclusions I want to present to you. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has provided a way out of mankind out of the judgment that is coming for our sins. We are, all of us, guilty before God for our rejection of him, before our sins against anyone else. We're guilty before God for our rejection of him as the only one worthy of our worship and our lives and our honor and our thanksgiving. Christianity is all about that. That God is offended and has been grievously sinned against by our corporate communal rejection of him as our God. That our creator created us and is saying through Jesus, come back to me. Repent. Turn back to me. It is unjust for you to refuse me the honor, worship, and love that is due me as your creator, upholder, sustainer, provider. That's what Christianity is about. Primarily, fundamentally, God is the one who has been sinned against. And God is the one who is angry at our sin. And at the same time, God is the one who deeply loves us and wants to rescue us from our sin. But if people don't have any sense of that, if they just see the idea that God is just wants to, he's wonderful, he loves you, it's fine, everything's good. Why would they ever repent? Why would they ever repent? If they don't see God as holy, if they don't see God as sinners under his judgment for his wrath for their sins, then why should we expect them to care if we tell them this holy God actually loves them and has provided a way for them to be reconciled to them, right? It's like the old joke. 
some plane is on its way to Australia from, you know, take your pick, from Europe. It's like an 18-hour flight. The stewardess is walking up and down the aisle with parachute bags. <laughs> this other steward's behind her with Cokes and pretzels. and The plane's fi- everything's fine. I got parachute bags up and down the aisle. Everyone's just kind of laughing, like, what's up with this crazy lady? But the Coke and the pretzel lady, she's swamped. Everybody wants Coke and pretzels. <sighs> right? The pilot gets on. Oh, we got some problem. Left engine just blew up. Right engine's going to fail in 15 minutes. Nobody cares about the pretzel lady anymore. <laughs> Everyone is ambushing the parachute lady. The only thing that changed is that they, they recognized the real circumstance they were in. So we want people to repent. We want them to repent, but they need to know and understand their circumstances, which, which for us means we have to be uncomfortable. We have to have tense discussions. We have to have moments where we're not saying all the happy things that we wish we could say and we want them to hear. So, so here are some takeaways. First, pray. Pray that you would have courage and clarity and of course, we want to pray for those gospel opportunities, but pray that you would have courage and clarity. Do you know what Paul asked the churches to pray for him? He asked them to pray for courage. He asked them to, to pray for him to have courage and clarity that he might preach the gospel unashamed and without compromise and clearly to people. That's so encouraging to me that Paul had to pray for that because I need that every day. So we want to pray because we want to be able to include and explain the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man in any gospel conversation. We want to look for opportunities. I'll go with the bullet points here. We want to pray for hungry hearts that will be ready for the Spirit's conviction because no one naturally wants to repent. Nobody wants to repent. I didn't want to repent. It doesn't come natural to any of us. It's a supernatural gift. So we want to pray for hungry hearts that will be ready at at the right time for the Spirit's conviction. Of course, we want to look, third bullet point, look for opportunities to speak of the need of repentance with gentleness and respect, knowing the Spirit must be at work in any successful response. Listen, I'm not advising you that now you have to go to your neighbors and your friends that you've been walking with and praying and, and get right in their faces and say to them, you sinner before a holy God, I'm not telling you not to do that if you can do that with love and respect. I don't know what the right moment is and the appropriate time is that that kind of thing will happen with gentleness and respect. In my own journey, I had a best friend from high school who came to the Lord through Campus Crusade for Christ. He got sick, had to stay home uh, in the area with me when he should have been off of college and he, he witnessed to me for like six months. Most of the time, he just listened to me talk about rock bands and movies and my fears and my insecurities and my battles with emotional hopelessness. And he became that kind of person I realized I could tell everything to and who would listen with compassion and kindness. He became that kind of person that I always wanted to have as a friend that I'd never had before. A gentle, faithful person I could 
be who I was. And I was a mess. Never had anybody in my life who I could just be a mess with all the time. But then one day, I did something I was really ashamed of. And I was really ashamed of it. God was really at work. And I could not get my hands clean. But I could tell him everything. So I told him about it. And he was not flattering. I remember what he said. He said, Albert, your heart is black with sin. It's, it's just black with sin. You, you can't change it. You need a savior. And I threw all this, all my Catholic upbringing in, what I understood, you know, Matthew 24, sheeps, Matthew 25, sheeps and the goats. But if I do these things, I'll be blessed and saved. If I don't do these things, I'm gonna go to hell. And so I can't, what do you mean I need a new heart? And what do you mean I can't save myself? Isn't it, isn't it a treadmill of <laughs> performance? No, 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 no. He went, then he went to Ephesians 2, pulled out his Bible and <laughs> battled. <laughs> Ephesians 2 versus Matthew 25. <laughs> you know, They're both true, but, but at that point, I needed Ephesians 2. I needed the grace of God and to see it clearly in Scripture. And he argued me, you know, out of this sense that I could change myself and have hope in myself. And said, you need Jesus to change your heart because it's covered with sin. But I needed to hear that. He was there at the right time. So I, I don't know where you guys are in that journey. But... <laughs> God forbid, and God help us, because too often I fear in my own self. I don't want to be a function of fear that that conversation is not taking place, that needs to take place. So we just need to be prayerful and asking God for these opportunities to speak and the knowledge to know when's the right time. Um, And then just the last thing I just want to say is that God wants us all to continue with a posture of repentance. You know, repentance and faith is to be the posture of the Christian. It's not something that just happens one time at conversion, but continuing to say, Lord, cleanse me of my sin, continuing to say, Lord, in light of your holiness, I need your forgiveness again. I want to take you seriously. Lord, I'm going to trust your forgiveness. Continue to believe in Christ, what he's done for us. We'll talk more about faith next time. But repentance is a, is a posture to continue in. Anybody old enough to remember that little um, ad when we were, I was a kid, um, like this big promo, they must, they must have been doing in the 70s for orange juice. Orange juice, remember what they, the tagline was? It's not just, are you serious? No one knows? Yes, Heather, was that you? Through the mask? <laughs> yeah, orange juice, it's not just for breakfast anymore. Did anybody remember that? My gosh, you guys did not watch enough TV. Anyway, that was on all the time. And repentance is not just for conversion, you know. It's an ongoing lifestyle that the Lord helps us with. All right, I'm going to pray you guys. Pray for you guys and we'll close. Lord, I just thank you for today. Uh, Thank you for your new mercies that are new every morning. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes, Lord, to who you are. Lord, you are our creator. You are the one to whom our hearts 
belong and our affections and our thanksgiving and our honor, Lord, is due to you more than anyone as our creator, our sustainer, our provider, the maker and holder together of all things. I pray you'd help us to see that this is right and good and that you are good and deserving of these things and not a tyrant. I pray, God, that you would help us to walk in repentance through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. And I pray you'd help us to be ready for these opportunities to share with others the hope that we have and that those conversations would would also, in, in many cases, Lord, we pray that people would say to us, Lord, would you just give it to us in your grace, that people would say, what must I do to be saved? That that hope that we declare would not end with, okay, thanks, but th there would be a sense in which they would be provoked to say, what, not only why are you different, what hope do you have, but what must I do to be saved? Please, Lord, make that happen in our lives and the lives around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.